0: Well, there is an anonymous poem that speaks about God's discipline in shaping a person to become a strong Christian. You might have heard of it before, but it's worth repeating. It's really good. And it says these words. When God wants to drill a man, and I am taking this in, in the inclusive sense of mankind, so men and women when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part when he, want, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed watch his method watch his ways how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. Isn't that a wonderful poem? It's great. This poem, I think, wonderfully captures the reality that God wants to discipline his people so that they grow spiritually. Indeed, discipline is an essential part of spiritual growth. Now we need to get it in our minds from the from the beginning that God is not mean or vindictive. While his discipline can be painful as he corrects and molds us, his discipline actually shows that he loves us. He is a loving God who will do whatever it takes to mold us and shape us into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, which is our eternal purpose. Did you know that? You should. We just went through that last last sermon series about discipleship, right? That is our eternal purpose. Romans 8, and 20, 28-29, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God uses all things, good things, but He also uses suffering and trials to help us become like Christ. Like it or not, we need discipline because of our proud, stubborn, and apathetic hearts. That hurt? That hit home? What it was supposed to. So if you're here today and you want to grow into that glorious goal of becoming like Christ, which you were chosen before the foundation of the world to do, if you want that to happen, we need to be willing to learn from God's discipline. Amen? and because God is good he tells us that his that how his discipline will indeed make us become like Christ and that's what we're going to explore here this morning so as you know we're in the midst of our series on the book of Job in the Old Testament we missed last week but now we're back to our on the Job training <laughs> on the Job training Come on. That was good. All right. Turn to Job 5. We're going to just briefly recap what we covered so far. The opening chapters of Job, as you know, we read that Satan asserts that Job only loves God because of the blessings he gets, like his family and his great wealth. And if those things were taken away... Job would curse God, meaning he would renounce God. And so God allows Satan to destroy his wealth and his family, but Job does not curse God, does he? Next, God allows Satan to afflict Job's health, but again, Job does not curse God. Now, after some time had passed, Job's friends show up, three of them, to visit him and comfort him. And in the midst of being in their presence, Job issued this, remember, this real startling, passionate lament about the suffering that he was going through. And then after that, we enter into these cycles of speeches between Job and his friends. And there's three cycles of speeches where, in each case, the friend says something, then Job responds. The next friend says something, then Job responds. Three cycles that run all the way through chapter 31. And last time, Eliphaz was the first friend to speak up, and his speech goes from chapters four to five. And last time we looked at verse chapter four, verses one to eleven, where Eliphaz asserts that suffering is always proportionate to sin. Suffering is always proportionate to sin, and so this view appears repeatedly in the friends' comments to Job. In their mind, Job's suffering must be caused by a sin. You guys remember that? They're dogmatic about it. And we saw that they are partially correct. Partially correct. Yes, God does punish our sins in this lifetime. However, He does not always punish proportionally. And sometimes people get away with sin in this lifetime, but not in the final judgment. Moreover, sometimes a godly person suffers beyond what seems to be proportional in the case, as in the case with Job, right? So there must be more to suffering than just God's punishment. Everybody following so far? That is part of this whole theme of the book of Job is about our suffering and God. And that's part of it. That's a piece of the pie. But it's not the whole pie. And that leads to our topic again today, our suffering and God's discipline. So get that in mind, the difference. With God's punishment, the focus is on retribution for our sins. With God's discipline, the focus is our spiritual growth. Discipline is not just for discipline's sake, but it's for another purpose, for our spiritual growth. Now there's overlap sometimes, right? I think that can happen. Or someone does something, and maybe God's punishing them, but at the same time, He's also disciplining them because He wants them to grow through that. Okay? So, today we're going to look at this very important topic of our suffering and God's discipline. So let's, we're going to continue on here with Eliphaz and his speech. We're going to skip ahead to chapter 5, verses 17 to 27. So if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, page 419. We're going to read verses 17 through 27. This is Eliphaz's speech. All right. So he says, "...behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal." He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven no evil shall touch you. In famine He will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and you shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and you shall not fear the beast of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing." You shall also know that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf, sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. So Eliphaz, he, he changes gears a bit here. He still thinks that Job is sinned, and that's going to be his dominant view throughout the story, that Job is, he thinks Job is suffering primarily because of his sin. But he changes gears just a little bit here from from talking about suffering as God's punishment to suffering as God's discipline. Again, verse 17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. So he says discipline is a good thing. We should not despise it. And God uses various trials... The discipline, notice how he mentions things like famine, war of the tongue, and wild animals, which would have been probably a, a more serious threat in the context that they lived, even though sometimes around here there's some pretty wild cr- creatures that roam these neck of the woods. But in general, not quite as a severe thing, but God will deliver us from these things, Eliphaz says, and bring restoration no matter how severe the discipline and notice how he says the number seven. The number seven is often used in Scripture to talk about completeness. So in other words, with all the different trials that you go through, God can deliver you from them. And from there, Eliphaz kind of in the rest of his speech, he wanders off into his belief that obedience automatically produces material blessing in your life. It's kind of ironic that he says this, because this is exactly what Satan was arguing, right? That the only reason that, God, that Job feared God was because he was blessed financially and had all these things in his life. And we know that's not the case. But all said, Eliphaz makes a nice contribution that sometimes our suffering comes as a result of the discipline of God. Now, just out of curiosity... What do you think Job would have made of their counsel at this point? Well, on one hand, Job agreed. He was a sinner. He never says that he was sinless throughout this whole story. Job 7.21, he says to God, Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? So Job recognized he was a sinner. But on the other hand, Job was, in general, a godly man. He was a righteous man. We see several times how he was pointed out as being a righteous man. And we saw from those opening chapters that he was not being punished directly because of his sin. God had more in mind. Part of it is just the sheer mystery of God, isn't it? We're going to discuss that in a few weeks. God has reasons that go beyond even what is revealed in Scripture. God is God, and we're not. We're small and finite. That's part of it. But I also think part of Job's suffering was God's discipline. Job was a godly man. But there's always room to grow, isn't there? There's always knowledge to grow in the knowledge of God. There's always things to change in our lives. And we get to the end of the story, we're going to see that. And that's an important point that we should file away in our minds. Sometimes God disciplines because of sin, but sometimes He disciplines even when there isn't sin, as in the case of Job. With both ways, though, God is seeking our spiritual growth. So, having looked at this passage here in Job, I want to take the rest of Scripture and the rest of our time here this morning and explore. Three specific ways that God's discipline produces spiritual growth in our lives. Three specific ways that God's discipline will produce spiritual growth in our lives. We know that it does produce spiritual growth, but you might be wondering, how so, right? Well, here's the first way. God's discipline reveals our true spiritual condition. God's discipline reveals our true spiritual condition. God knows our true spiritual condition, right? He knows everything. But he wants us to know it, doesn't he? He knew Job. He knew Job's condition, but he wanted Job to know it, and he wanted Satan to know it as well. And so sometimes Scripture speaks of how God tests us, doesn't he? For example... Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. God wants us to know what's in our own hearts. And if we're to grow, the first step is having an accurate understanding of how we really are before God, right? And that's not easy. You might think it's easy, but it's not easy, friend. You know why? Because we're really good at making excuses, aren't we? It's somebody else's fault for why I do this or don't do that. The circumstances are too hard, or whatever it might be. I was thinking about, isn't it amazing how we can spot the sins in other people's lives with the eyes of an eagle? But when it comes to our own sins, we have the eyes of a mole. And even when we do realize sin in our hearts, we're often pretty apathetic about doing anything about it. We kind of just rather sit and enjoy the sin rather than really repent over it. So God, friends, He has to intervene, doesn't He? C.S. Lewis famously said, Pain is God's megaphone to get our attention. He's right. Perhaps you've heard the analogy of toothpaste, that we're like a tube of toothpaste. You don't know what's on the inside until you squeeze it. Then you see what comes out. And so sometimes God gently exerts pressure. He rolls up the tube, so to speak, right? He's just good and loving and patient. And he, but He's trying to bring something to the forefront. And so He just kind of rolls up the tube. The Lord wants to know in our hearts what's going on there. And so He brings things in your life to see what's in your heart. And So perhaps you struggle with patience. And there's a person or a circumstance that keeps coming your way that just annoys you to no end. Perhaps you struggle with selfishness and you are repeatedly put in a position of seeing others in need. What will you do when that happens? Perhaps you lack a sense of trust that God could really provide for you. And so maybe he starts chipping away at your finances and see how you really trust God. Perhaps God wants you to demonstrate how much you really love him. And so he might give you a job opportunity where it's a nice promotion, maybe a nice increase in salary. But do you know what? When when you take that job, it's going to really detract from your family life or it's going to detract from your church participation. What are you going to do? Do you see how God just does, these, does these kind of gentle ways? And, and, and I think God does this where He just will send similar situations to you over and over and over and over again, trying to get your attention, trying to get you to respond, doesn't He? So that you will be disciplined. But you know what? Sometimes God doesn't just roll up the toothpaste. Sometimes He drops it on the floor and smashes it, because He wants to see everything come out on the open. And again, He uses all kinds of means. Maybe there's someone who struggles with gossip, and they've been getting away with it for a while. And then, boom, someone finds out they've been talking about them and they confront them in front of everybody. Maybe there's somebody who struggles with a pornography addiction. They get discovered by a family member. A person who steals is caught at the store or by their employer. Or her, perhaps sometimes it's an innocent question that comes like the, the, the impact of a two-ton safe. Maybe somebody just asks you about how your Bible reading is. Or your prayer life? Or how often you share your faith? And it's just an innocent question, but all of a sudden you're getting pretty uncomfortable because it comes out. This area of your life. The tube gets squashed. God's discipline, friend, whether it's through a gentle exertion, whether it's through a a sort of dramatic exposure, is there to reveal our true spiritual condition. Second, God's discipline develops godly character. God wants us to see our true condition and then respond accordingly. He wants us to turn from those things and start obeying God's Word. And you see how discipline is a constant theme in Scripture leading to God's growing to godly character. Let me just mention three texts here, and if you will, join with me in turning to them. The first is found in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. This is Jesus speaking here. John chapter 15. Jesus says, verses 1 and 2, I am the true vine, and My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear fruit. More fruit. Now, in the context, a branch that does not bear fruit is someone who is not truly a Christian. A true Christian is connected to the vine. And they bear fruit, meaning they, they have godly character and they're seeking to advance the kingdom of God. So you say, okay, they bear fruit. God's done with them, right? They're good. They're bearing fruit. No? Notice that for those who bear fruit, what happens to them? God prunes them. You say, what is that? Well, in agricultural terms, pruning is removing part of that branch to produce more fruit. The branch isn't necessarily dead. It's just not producing enough fruit there. And so it is pruned back so that it will produce even more fruit. Now, in Christian terms, God prunes or disciplines so that they produce even more fruit. Friends, there's always room to grow in producing. But notice that pruning imagery is kind of painful, isn't it? There's a snipping away, there's a cutting away of things that are distracting or taking away from your service to the Lord and your heart for God. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. says there, "...and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives." that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So friends, God disciplines us so that we would share in His holiness. He disciplines us so that we would produce the fruit of righteousness. God wants it to just be ingrained and woven into our spirit that we would rather turn away from sin and to seek after the Lord. That is why He disciplines us, right? To develop godly character. And here's one more. You're pretty close to it. Just flip a little bit ahead to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. verses 2 to 3, excuse me, 2 to 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here we see that these trials, they test us. And when we handle these trials properly, they produce endurance. And if we would let endurance have its full effect, it leads to character that is perfect and complete. Friends, we need to trust that His discipline is developing godly character so that we're not trying to constantly escape the trials of life. There's nothing wrong, hear me out, there's nothing wrong in asking to be delivered out of situations sometimes, right? You're in a very difficult spot. There's nothing wrong in praying for deliverance. But I fear sometimes that that we become preoccupied with that, don't we? That we just say, Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. Rather than, Lord, do you want me to develop endurance to weather through this and to develop the character that you have for me instead? Do you see the difference God has blueprinted that trial in your life. He knows why it is there. He knows why you need it. And He knows the effect that He wants you to, it's supposed to have upon you. We shouldn't try to play hot potato and get it out of our lap as soon as it happens. The Streams in the Desert uh, devotional relates a really fascinating story about a man who found the cocoon of an emperor moth and took it home. Uh, the emperor moth, guys know what an emperor moth is it's got a picture got a picture there we go it's it's quite a moth there isn't it right not your maybe your average moth in your house big beautiful wings that it's known for so this man he finds an emperor moth in its cocoon and after almost a year one day the moth finally begins to start coming out of the cocoon now the cocoon has this little narrow opening and especially in comparison to the size that it is It seemed that the moth was stuck to this man at a certain point, and he thought it wasn't going to get free. So the man ran out of patience. You know what he did? He took some scissors and he snipped the confining threads of the cocoon. And the moth immediately came out. But it did not look as expected. Its body was large and swollen, and its wings were small and shriveled. Sadly, it crawled around and never took to flight. You say, well, what happened? Well, it seems that the moths struggle to get through that narrow opening, actually pushes the fluids from its swollen body out to its wings so that they develop properly. So when the man tried to alleviate the struggle of the moth, he actually hindered it from developing its beautiful wings. And the moth was confined to this short little existence of never flying. You get where I'm going with this? Likewise, God's discipline. Discipline. Is designed to produce godly character, the character of Christ. We shouldn't be so preoccupied. Again, it's okay to say, Lord, deliver me out of this, but let it not become a preoccupation that we are so fixated with that that we lose sight of why God has us here in the first place in this and what He might be teaching us to develop godly character. Amen? Now, God's God's discipline does not end with godly character. Romans 5, 3-4 says... We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Listen to this. And character produces hope. Character leads to hope. Now, in Paul's writings, when he speaks about hope, he is referring to the new creation. When Christ returns and brings uh, His new kingdom, His eternal kingdom, So in other words, discipline leads us to develop godly character and prepares us for the new creation. That's the third thing I want us to see, is that God's discipline prepares us for this new creation. You say, "Oh, how does this work? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says in verse sixteen to eighteen these words Page nine sixty six if you use one of the Bibles in front of you, it says So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul says, look, our outward appearance is wasting away. That's a great verse you put on somebody's birthday card, you know. Especially they get over 40 or whatever, and they're starting to feel these things. Hey, you know, your outward appearance is wasted away. But inwardly we're being renewed day by day in our spirit. And you say, Well, how in the world is that happening? Well, it happens as our afflictions the things that, we're there, that we are going through, God is using them to create in us a hunger for eternal things. These, Notice what He says. Light and momentary afflictions. They're light. They're momentary in contrast to eternity. Moreover, they're purposeful. They're preparing you for glory. The new creation that is unseen one day will be seen. One day coming. God is going to prepare that for us. And so our suffering stirs in us a longing for the new creation when God returns and sets up His eternal kingdom. Amen? Now in my life, this has been kind of interesting. I've been a Christian for over 20 years. And in earlier days, I, can, I don't think I had this real longing for the new creation. In fact, I remember talking with a Christian gentleman one time, who was speaking of these things, and I remember walking away thinking he seemed kind of strange for talking about that. Now, of course, I knew that the new creation was going to be better than this life, but I didn't have this sort of hunger for it. But interestingly, over time, this has changed. You say, well, what happened? Well, it wasn't so much that I learned something new, but what happened was affliction. Suffering. Just like Paul said. And it starts changing how you see these things, doesn't it? Battles with sin, I think, should stir in us that longing for a day when there's no more worldly temptations. Satan. And just our own sin that makes you think, why did I just think that? Why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? Aging bodies stir us for resurrected bodies. Loneliness stirs us for the company of heaven. Death that we see around us stirs us for eternal life. You know what? Even the blessings. And God gives so many blessings in this life, doesn't he? The abundant blessing should stir in us a longing for the source to be with the source of all good blessings, the ultimate good to be in His presence. And friends, this hope is so great that it should supersede any suffering It really should. That when you go through affliction, it should stir within you. Oh man, my body's aching. You know what? I don't like it. That's not great, but I'm longing for that new resurrection body. Oh, this this happened in my life, this trial, this sin. I long for that day when I am free from the bondage of sin. God wants to discipline us to prepare us. Isn't He good that He uses our shortcomings and the fallenness of the world to prepare us for that great new creation? But let me stress something. This hunger for the new creation is not escapism. I think sometimes Christians can fall into that where they get so frustrated and so disappointed by this world that they got kind of to just check out of this world. And all they ever do is think about the new creation. That's not God's will. Look at Paul in Philippians 1. He's looking at a possible death sentence. He thinks he's going to avoid it. But Paul says, you know what? I, w- I don't mind if I die because then I go to be with Christ. and That's far better. But you know what? It's a tough choice because I want to be here and serve you and build you up. Do you see the difference? There's no place for this kind of escapism. We should have a love to serve people and to see God's blessings here in this world. But all of that, as we go through those afflictions, should be stirring us this sort of insatiable hunger for the new creation to say, Lord, I can't wait for you to bring your best here to this earth. It's going to be great. So friends, God's discipline isn't easy, is it? It's not easy. That's why we need to fix it in our minds, these things, and have this firm hope and foundation ingrained in our hearts that God loves us. He doesn't discipline you aimlessly. He is always seeking your spiritual growth. And He wants us to have it fixed in our minds, that He wants us to know, hey, where do we stand in our true spiritual condition before God? Are we developing godly character through these trials? And is it preparing for us, our hearts, in the new creation? Amen? Now, in response to the word here this morning, we're going to actually celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it ties in so nicely to this message. You say, well, why is that? Well, friends, the Lord's Supper, as we know, is a symbol of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus commands believers to take it and to remember His death. And Scripture also teaches us that before we take of the Lord's Supper, what should we do? We should examine ourselves, shouldn't we? to make sure that we don't treat His sacrifice lightly. The Lord's Supper, in a sense, helps us to examine our true spiritual condition before taking the Lord's Supper, to confess our sins, and then to grow in godly character. It's not a time to just be downcast and somber. It's a time to lay those things down before the Lord and to grow and to rejoice that God is a gracious and forgiving God who forgives us completely and freely in Jesus Christ, right? So before we pass out the Lord's Supper, It's a wonderful opportunity to examine ourselves. Are there ways that we have disobeyed the Lord that we need to ask for forgiveness? Are there ways that God has been tapping us on the shoulder and that we're not taking seriously? Now is the time. And one last thing. The Lord's Supper is also, as Jesus teaches us, a a snapshot one day of when we will celebrate it with Him in the new creation, right? Right? He told the disciples, we're not going to have this again until that day I'm with you with all the saints in glory. Isn't that wonderful? We celebrate it together here this morning. And just finally, a gentle invitation that if today you're sitting here listening to this message, and the message was geared for God's people, how they respond to discipline. Maybe you're sitting here today and you realize, you know what? I'm not one of God's people. I've never truly trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Never asked Him for the forgiveness of sin and truly believed and trusted Him alone for my salvation. What a a wonderful opportunity before we take the Lord's Supper as we have a moment of silence here in the quietness of your heart to say, Lord, I do need forgiveness. And I know Jesus is the one to forgive me. Today I'm placing my faith and trust in Christ. And I want to start following Him the rest of my days. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to be with your people, to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each heart and mind how they and us would respond to what you have spoken here today. Lord, you are a God who disciplines. And you do it because you love us. Lord, as we take of this Lord's Supper, it is your appointed time for us to come before you and say, Lord, how is my condition before you? Are there things that, Lord, we need to lay aside as we take up our cross? And Lord, as we cry out and say, God, we want to have the character that resembles our Savior. And Lord, remind us that this world is indeed passing away. And we look forward to the day when we will celebrate it anew with you in the new creation. Give us that hunger. Give us that hope. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.